Welcome along to the Brain for Business, Brain for Life podcast with me, Lawrence Nell, where we take the lessons from evidence-based academic research, most particularly involving the brain and behavioral sciences, and translate them in a way that is accessible for leaders and organizations. I'm delighted to welcome to this episode of Brain for Business, Brain for Life, Dr. Lara Frumkin of The Open University. Lara is a senior lecturer in the School of Psychology at The Open University, having previously worked in a variety of roles in academia, government, and the not-for-profit sector. This includes spells working at the American Psychological Association and at the US Department of Justice, where she worked on linking psychology to relevant aspects of justice, security, and crime. Her research focuses on the application of psychological principles to law enforcement and security services, as well as the impact of extra legal factors on case outcome and community responses to terrorism and extremism. Lara, you are very welcome. Thank you very much. It's good to be here. Perhaps you might start by telling us a little about the role that accents play in defining our understanding of and, and engagement with a person. Of course. Um, so accents play a huge role, and accents, like a number of other factors, um, influence how we perceive another person, how we make decisions or judgments about another person. So accent is one of those things that you can't necessarily tell when you look at someone, but the second a person opens up their mouth, a whole series of decisions and connections are made by us in our brain about the person. Um, so if you hear someone speaking with what's considered a very standard accent, you might think, all right, they're like me, they fit in, I can understand what they're saying. If you hear someone with a regional accent, you might start thinking about, ah, oh, I wonder when they left, how long have they spent in that particular region? What kind of expressions might they use in the way that they speak? Um, when you hear someone with a non-native or a foreign accent, again, you start to make those sorts of judgments and decisions. Now, what we find that happens sometimes when you're speaking with people is that rather than focusing solely on the content of what they're saying, you start thinking about other aspects of the person. So if someone has a foreign accent and you can't immediately identify it, rather than focusing on the, the central message of what it is they're saying, you might be thinking, ah, where do they come from? How long have they spent here? Am I going to be able to understand them? And so when you're engaging with people in that sort of way, you might not be as wholly focused on the message that the person is trying to convey if they're speaking with a non-standard accent. And I should also say by non-standard, I mean the accent that the listener has. So standard and non-standard would vary based on, on where you are. But in my case, I think of my accent as a standard accent um, as a listener. But if you're the listener, you would think of your accent as a standard one and everybody else unless they have your exact accent, is the non-standard one. Um, so those are some of the factors that we, that we need to think about when we hear people and how accents play a role in how we engage with others. And, and what's, what's actually going on there in, in terms of those underlying psychological processes? Is it a case of, of us sort of seeing ourselves as the center of the situation and then regarding others as quite literally others? What, what, what's going on? So, yes and no, there definitely is a an other versus us sort of phenomenon. And in accent theory, there are a number of different sorts of features that play a role. So one of the common ways to think about accents is status and solidarity. And what you had talked about was the solidarity component. So we feel 
um, a sense of solidarity, liking trustworthiness with people who sound like us. Similarly, with people who, who look like us, who act like us, probably to some extent who dress like us, who are around the same age, all of those sorts of things play a role. So once we feel something in common with the person, we tend to be a bit more at ease. Um, the other way that we can see some of these underlying mechanisms would be something that's referred to as status with the accent. So people who speak with a high status accent, um, we tend to be more deferential towards. And while it does depend to some extent on where you come from, there are a few accents that are seen to be higher status. Um, now this changes over time. So 40 or 50 years ago, received pronunciation um, accent, which is the, the very high class British accent. So not, well, I guess to some extent what the Queen speaks, but more um, you know, certain members of parliament or certain news readers would speak RP. That was seen as very high status and people would be very deferential and very respectful of people who speak with those accents. What we've seen in the past 10 or 20 years is that that accent has lost favor to some extent. It's still rated quite highly, but some of the regional accents have started to also move up a bit more. So in terms of an underlying mechanism, you've got solidarity with the speaker, but you also have this component of status. And people are trying to balance that out. As they're listening to the speaker, they're making decisions about what they think about the speaker and how the listener rates on a favorability, how they feel in line with the speaker. And is there also a, an element of positive association? And I guess what I mean by that is, you know, if I have um, met lots of great people from Yorkshire and good friends of mine, I really like them and have lots of, you know, positive experiences with them, that I might start to have a more positive view of, of people with, say, Yorkshire accents as opposed to Liverpool accents, for, just for example. Yes, definitely. So there are a few different ways this can work. Exactly like you said, um, knowing people who speak with an accent and you liking those people definitely would make you more receptive to liking other people with that sort of accent. Um, almost like when you have conversations with people and you try to find something in common. So the, oh, you're from Yorkshire. I have a number of friends from Yorkshire. I've been to this, this, and this town in Yorkshire and I really enjoy my time there. So you immediately hear the speech, you like the way the accent sounds and you start finding something in common with that person. The other thing um, that happens is that a lifelong exposure to a variety of accents, let's say a Yorkshire accent, also makes it so that listeners can process accents more rapidly. So one of the other problems we find is that if you're unfamiliar with the accent, um, it will take you longer to process it. But if you're used to that accent and if you're used to a variety of accents, you will be more easily able to adapt to sounds or patterns of speech that aren't necessarily ones that you are used to in your own speech. I'm not sure if that makes sense. No, it, it, it does. Uh, absolutely. And, and I'm curious, you know, as I understand it, you know, a lot of your research has been undertaken in, in the UK. But is this is this a universal phenomenon? So would someone, for example, in China or Japan, uh, you know, uh, someone who is Chinese or Japanese, would they also experience this sort of process in Chinese or Japanese, respectively? Or, or is it something limited more to, to, to English and English contexts? 
It's a great question. Um, the answer is yes, it does happen in other countries as well. And you're right, most of my research has been done in the UK. I've done a little bit in the US. There are other research like this that has happened in other countries as well. So in Spain and in Australia. Um, so I can very easily say in those countries, you see the same sort of thing. Um, so for instance, um, you know, the study in Spain very much took that solidarity um, type of component so or dimension. So people who spoke with a regional accent that was the same as the listeners were more willing to believe the listeners to like the, uh, sorry, the, the speakers, like the speakers, rate them higher. In Australia, what, what the researchers found is that the status component was more important. So people who spoke with a higher status accent were rated better. Now, there have been some studies that have been done in East Asian countries. Um, and I want to say there was one that was done in Korea. Um, but that one, interestingly, was looking at Koreans' perception of American English speakers and Korean speakers who were speaking in English. Um, and what was found there was that the status component of the American speech was seen as higher status. And so that was liked more. Um, I would imagine you would find the same thing for Korean speakers speaking Korean with different dialects or non-native Korean speakers speaking Korean and the same with uh, Japan or other countries as well, because I think this is really a universal phenomenon. We like to put people into groups and we use verbal cues that aren't necessarily attached to the message when we make decisions or judgments about people. It's interesting that the point you make there about the research from Korea, because it reminds me of, of, of radio advertisements you sometimes hear where the, the voiceover is in, for example, an American accent, even though the product, the service, the company that is being advertised is based in the UK or, or in Ireland where I am. So it's sort of almost irrelevant, yet my assumption is they're playing on that status uh, point that you mentioned there. Yes, I think that's exactly right. And it's it, being an American myself, when I hear um, a British accent, I always think, oh, that's such a nice accent. And we in the US tend to think of the British accent, <clears throat> excuse me, as the, as the higher status accent. But I think because American TV um, has infiltrated in so many different countries, people are very used to hearing it. So it does command a level of status that perhaps other accents don't by sheer virtue of being everywhere and being heard regularly. And does that also play out in the sense that if someone from the United States or from Australia or from Ireland might, for example, travel to the United Kingdom, people in, in, in England, for example, can't necessarily pick that that sort of status level that that person might have in their home country because they're just not as familiar with the the accent. So I'm thinking here, for example, of various you know television um, celebrities from from outside England who who work in England, and and they're able almost to move in and and be outside of that uh, indigenous class structure. Yes, very much so. Um, it's exactly the case, and I can tell you as well from personal experience. I have had people say almost exactly what you said about not fitting into the class structure by virtue of being an American. Um, 
so yes, that, that does very much happen. And you're right, people can't always identify um, the accent. So even when I am out and about um, in the UK, people will sometimes ask me about my accent. And they will often say, I know you're American, but from where? Whereas in the US, people can relatively easily identify where I'm from within a region. Okay, interesting. So if we go back to, to your research, um, how does this play out in a, in a legal or, or policing context? <clears throat> this is a huge issue. Um, and this has been studied on and off um, for a good few years. It's not actually been studied as much as I think it should be. So I can tell you specifically about some of my research. Um, I've done a few studies where I've looked at eyewitnesses um, rather than defendants. And the reason for that is that I think the defendant has um, higher stake in the game, as it were. The defendant is ending up in a court and is going to be tried, either acquitted or convicted. Whereas an eyewitness is somebody who was in the wrong place at the wrong time and either saw or heard a crime and has been called into a police station or a courtroom to give evidence. Had that person been a few minutes later or earlier or wasn't paying attention, they might not be a witness to the crime at all. So really nothing about the specific witness should be relevant except their ability to have seen or heard and then remember what happened. Um, but what I found in my research is that accent does make a huge difference in terms of how a witness is rated. Um, so I've looked at very crudely higher and lower status accents in the UK and found that higher status accents are rated better. So a witness, um, when you ask mock jurors to listen, a witness is much more likely to be seen as credible, as accurate, um, as believable if they speak with a higher status accent, even when all the other um, features of the witness statement are held the same. Um, I've looked at this as well with more specific accents. So with a a standard British accent, so not quite that received pronunciation, but a kind of a high status standard British accent compared to a regional London accent and to a Birmingham accent. And what we found there is that the um, overall standard accent, the witness tends to be rated better than does the person with the regional London accent, even though the research was done in London. So in terms of solidarity, you would think our listeners would like that London accent. And the Birmingham accent was not liked well at all. Um, in studies in the U.S., you would find the same sort of thing. The native American, general American English tends to be rated better than Southern American English or than foreign accented English. So accent plays a huge role. And again, it's not that anything is being said differently. So the statements are all being held constant. They're all exactly the same thing. But you find that the way that the message is said determines how much it's liked and believed and how credible it is, which, as you can imagine, in a courtroom will have huge implications um, for conviction, for acquittal, for defendants and for witnesses. And, and that was going to be my next question. I mean, what would you say are the specific implications for, for justice, for, for fair treatment and, and for, for fair outcomes in that kind of legal context if all of these other factors are coming into play? It, well, I mean, I, I think these are hugely problematic, and there are a few instances um, 
in different cases where we've seen this has been a problem. So there was a court case in the US um, six or seven years ago where someone was being tried for murder. That person was ultimately acquitted, but the prosecution's um, star witness um, who heard the murder, she was on the phone, she was asked to come in and give testimony as to what it was that she heard while the crime was, was taking place. The media, after she was giving her testimony, really was horrible to her. They said that her accent made it difficult to understand. There are other aspects of her speech that were difficult for them as well, but the accent made it really difficult for them to understand. They didn't like the way she spoke. She didn't appear believable. And then anonymously, one member of the jury after said, we didn't even take her testimony into account. We thought it was completely irrelevant. Now, whether it was irrelevant because they didn't think her being on the phone that she could have accurately heard and conveyed what happened or whether it was the accent we don't know but this man who was accused of murder was acquitted and the witness was basically dismissed by the media and at least one juror so i think this has huge implications for treatment and again this is the witness not even the defendant so i think if you're looking at the defendant the accent plays a crucial role but even when you go one step out with the defendant, uh, sorry, with the witness, if you're thinking about who you want to bring into a court to be an eyewitness, to be an expert witness, how that person speaks is going to make a difference in how convincing they might be to the jury. And I think that's really problematic because if you go with the idea that justice is blind, it seems here that justice is not blind. Absolutely. And it reminds me of different situations and where steps have been taken to to try and, and, and remove some of that that inherent bias. So thinking of um, you know, blind auditions for, for orchestras, for example, so so people aren't judging a person's musical ability based on their gender, even if it's subconsciously. But then how can you how can you remove that from from a courtroom? You you can't you you can't remove the eyewitnesses' voice from them. You can't dub them over. How how, how might you actually deal with it though? It it's a really good question. Um, you know, so th there are things that you can do, but you know the the blind auditions I think is a, a perfect example of where you really can do that, even if you were to have the eyewitness not seen unless like you said you dub them over or unless you give transcripts and you have somebody read out um that's the only sort of thing you can do judges instructions might not make a difference because even if it's highlighted to people that there are these implicit biases that we have or or triggers um that when somebody says something in a particular accent we might start making associations i don't even think that really makes a difference so Blind, like the orchestra interviews, having eyewitnesses who aren't seen might make one step in the right direction, but I think that becomes particularly difficult. Um, and you can see this as well. There was a, another series of issues that came up in another U.S. court in Philadelphia. Recently, were stenographers, who are the people who record verbatim what is said in the courtroom, weren't even accurately able to record particular witnesses and defendants. So even people whose job it is to identify what's being said aren't getting it accurately. Now, in good news, the judges in Philadelphia have been made aware of this and they're 
investigating what can be done. Um, so I would say one possible outcome would be, let's see what happens in Philadelphia and maybe they'll come up with some good suggestions. But short of that, at the moment, I really don't know the best way forward. If we t take a step back, you know, we've been talking about, say, a, a courtroom situation and, and eyewitnesses. Even before we get to, to, to the situation of, of courtroom and, and a legal trial, can this accent situation also play out with the way that police might engage with both suspects and 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 witnesses so they may you know almost inadvertently act as as a filter based on how they're perceiving a person uh, using the accent as a guide or, or am i misunderstanding things you are spot on um definitely how how dismissive or receptive a police officer might be to a particular person's statement could be dependent on their accent. Um, and the same way that it would be in a number of, of other situations. So there is research that's looked at um, you know, people applying for jobs and not in real life, these are laboratory settings, but people who speak with an accent are less likely to be hired or less likely to be given the interview for the job. I imagine it would be exactly the same with the police officer. And it's not a conscious sort of thing. So this isn't to try and be dismissive of the human resources company or, or the police officers. It's just something that we do. It's human nature. We try to find things that we can hang on to. So your exposure to the accents, how familiar you are with the accent, um, accented speech, whether it's non-native or a particular dialect, is going to be processed more slowly. That might lead to frustrations on the part of any listener, police officer or otherwise. If they're feeling frustrated listening to the statement, they might be more dismissive of it. If they're more dismissive of it, they might not put that person forward for the prosecution as a witness. So you kind of have this, this follow-on effect of as soon as there's one issue with the accent or one person feeling that they don't like the accent, even in a, a subtle, non-conscious sort of way, that can then become problematic. I know we've been focusing uh, a lot on, on the legal context and, and policing and so on, but uh, it strikes me that even in more general settings, so so in, say, politics or, or, or business, for example, this could also play a role. So someone may be perceived differently as a, as a manager or as a political candidate based on, on, on their accent. Have you seen any research into that at all? Um, there is some, yes. And there are also a number of anecdotal reports about this as well. Um, so, you know, in the US, um, there are certain accents, actually in the UK as well, certain accents that tend to be trusted more um, and others where people are thought to be a little bit sneakier, if you will, or or perhaps they they aren't believed quite as much. There might be a hidden agenda. Um, so I believe in the UK, it's the Yorkshire accent that sounds very trustworthy and reliable. In the US, it's the Southern or certain Southern American um, accents. So, you know, without getting into too much detail, a very strong Southern drawl might be a problem, but a slight drawl tends to be perceived as more trustworthy than, let's say, a harsher New York type of accent. Um, 
so we do see that happening. Um, in terms of politics, there are some anecdotal reports of politicians who are more willing now to use their their local or the regional accents than the more kind of standard um, British speech. And that seems to go down relatively well. And whether that's been done in a, in a laboratory setting, I don't think it has, um, but probably a good thing to be looking into. Okay. So if people did want to find out more, are there any particular resources that, that you would uh, refer people to at all? Yes. Um, so there are a number of different things. Um, there are some academic journals that people could look at. So the Journal of Language and Discrimination or the Journal of Language and Social Psychology. These both focus actually on the broader aspects of accent and language and how that plays a role in how we make decisions about people. So some of those would be human resources or employment tribunals and some would be related to law. So those would be some of the things um, that could be looked at more in the legal setting I would say following this court case in Philadelphia, because this is a very timely one and seeing what comes out of that um, would be important to do if you're interested. There are also conferences um, which are academic in nature, but people could always write in and find out about them. So, for instance, there are conferences um, on linguistic prejudice, for instance, which, again, aren't necessarily related to law, but a much broader prejudice towards language, accent, and the way that people speak. So those are the sorts of things I might direct people to. Okay, that sounds great. Well, Dr. Lara Frumkin, many thanks for your time. It's been great speaking to you. Thank you very much. song electronic beat time and dream sequence by lorenzo's music is licensed under an attribution share and share alike license